Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Altogether, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heavenly Father, um, that passage is really hard. It's really hard, Lord. And Lord, so we just ask you, as we do every week, that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine the text Help, our, help us to see, um, help us to see uh, what you would have for us. Give us a spirit of surrender, even as we approach this um, with fear and trembling, really. So Lord, just uh, yeah, help us in these moments as we explore your true words for your people. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So on July 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis, it's a Navy warship, was uh, returning home on a secret mission. And they were intercepted by the Japanese Navy. Surprised them. The attack was swift. The ship was sunk. Uh, of the 1,200 men that were on the ship, 300 of them died immediately. The, the rest abandoned the ship, 
They were left out to sea for four days, five nights with no food or water. Of the 900 that were left at sea, only 300 would survive. Uh, One of those 300 was a medic, and he recorded uh, these events. He says this. He says, he says, there was nothing I could do except give advice, bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep them from drinking the water. When the hot sun came out and we were in the middle of crystal clear blue ocean, you just couldn't believe that it was not safe to drink the water. He says, I would even hit the young guys. I would hit them to keep them from drinking, but it was virtually impossible. Because when they started to drink the salt water, they always went fast. When they drank, first came the hallucinations, reality was skewed, and death followed quickly. Something, something, even someone hitting them, had to call them back. The water looked so good. It looks so good, especially when you're so thirsty. But when you drink it, you always go fast. Why do I begin this way? So we are continuing in our book of Ephesians, and the Apostle Paul, as we just heard, is going to get personal. He's kind of taking a turn. Paul's going to critique behaviors, critique lifestyles, choices that you and I might feel confused about. Um, here's the thing is, you and I, we live in a culture that has shaped what feels right and what feels wrong. And I didn't say that it shapes what's right and wrong. I said there are certain behaviors that feel or they, they seem right or they seem wrong. And, and so when we read this ancient book, you know, it kind of hits us <laughs> like the medic. And, and we, can be, we can feel tempted to, to read the Bible and say, oh my goodness, it's so closed-minded, so old-fashioned. Come on, get with the times. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? And why do we feel that when we hear these ancient words? I would say it like this. Our menu of possibilities and our imagination has been shaped by the culture in which we reside. It's, it's virtually impossible to convince us that how we feel is not reality. And it's because we've been drifting out to sea and we're so, so thirsty. Living in our culture being, and being distinct from it feels impossible. Culture is so pervasive, right? We're swept up into its thinking and into its attitudes. And there's so much pressure to assimilate. I mean, if you believe in something, take, for instance, I don't know, traditional sexual ethics, you can't simply have those beliefs. We we no longer live in a world where it's safe to disagree. Our culture says that our Christian perspective is actually what's wrong in the world, right? You're, You're considered hateful, even, it seems. We live in a negative world where the the net the net value of of good for for Christianity in society is it's like a we're, we're at like this negative net value as a as a social good so we're, we've become pariahs I'm, I'm not being an alarmist about this I'm not I'm not like culture warrior here I'm just saying that's just the world we live in just you got to know that right um and so that in this world it's not simply that we disagree it's that we've 
come to be seen as a source of what's wrong. And I tell you, that's, that's compelling pressure to give it up. <laughs> it is. I don't want to be hateful. Like, do you? I mean, I don't. So culture is persistent. It beats you into submission until your actual imagination gets reshaped. It's because we're so thirsty, and we can't imagine how that clear blue water is not good to drink. But if you drink it, you'll go fast. So we need a voice to wake us up, to call us back, to renew our imagination. And, and we get that in this really hard passage. The, the teachings in the Bible, you guys hear, are not just a list of rules. It's a voice. I want you to think of it as a voice to reform our imagination so that we can see things for what they are, even when it makes us unpopular in our own culture. So today when we read this text, there might be a temptation to read it as a list of do's and don'ts. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening in on this, you might be tempted to say, you know what, this is pretty cliche, right? I I come to church and they just want to tell me how to live my life, right? Now listen, (laughs) I get it. I do. I get it. You know, it's interesting. Every time I'm, I share my faith and someone is becoming interested in Jesus, before they give their life to Jesus, there's a series of questions that come first, right? They, they ask me questions like, hey, if I, um, if I become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop having sex you know, if they're single? Uh, what about my lifestyle? If I become a Christian, do I have to give away my money? Like, do I have to vote in a certain way, right? There's all these questions. There's this, there's this intuition that if I get married to Jesus, let's just use it, let's just like to use that as an analogy. If I get married to Jesus, then I have to change my life. Now listen closely. Yes. Yes, you do. If you get married to anyone, you must absolutely change your life, and even more so if you are being married to Jesus, you see. Conversion matters. Paul is not saying be good boys and girls so that you might be good enough for Jesus to marry you. What this passage is doing is it's calling you out of these hallucinations. It's saying because I am a Christian, Everything that I thought to be true, I now have to rethink. And so, yes, 100% your choices matter, but, in a, but actually in a more profound way than I think we can even get our brains around. And so that's what I want to do this morning. As we study this passage we just heard in Ephesians 4, we're going to examine how Paul kind of gives us kind of three portraits. And he's going to begin with a portrait of disobedience, and then we're going to have a portrait of change. And then a portrait of obedience. And so that's how we're going to structure our study this morning. So let's begin with a portrait of disobedience. In very predictable fashion, I'm going to begin our study by telling us an allegory by C.S. Lewis. I'm pretty predictable here. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he writes a book that not everyone has read. It's called The Great Divorce. Uh, It's going to help us kind of, I I want to use this because I think it's going to help us get our brains around how how this text is working on us. So in The Great Divorce, in a very artistic, it's an artistic fiction about heaven and hell. And so hell in this book is characterized as this joyless, gray city. And no one even realizes that it's gray. And the citizens of this gray, joyless city are 
ghosts. That is like their humanity is, is disappearing, okay? And they're all kind of assimilated into its misery and don't realize it. Well, there's this bus ride from the gray city into the foothills of heaven. And now citizens of heaven in this book are extremely compassionate. They just want to help in any way possible. And in this one scene, one of these ghost humans from the gray city has a conversation at the foothills with this fiery angel. And the ghost man has this lizard, okay, that's fixated on his shoulder, and it's constantly, like, speaking into his ears. So the lizard, just so you know, is like a metaphor for indwelling sin, okay? So the lizard is there on his shoulder, and it's whispering. And this ghost man is clearly agitated by it. And so the fiery angel, wanting to be helpful, offers to kill this annoying creature. And the ghost says, Oh, yes, please, that would be great. Please do that. And so the fiery angel takes one step forward towards him, and the ghost man says, Oh, man, oh, whoa, whoa, you're, you're burning me. Uh, and so the, the, the fiery angel says, Well, don't you want me to kill the lizard? Now, at this point, at the sight of the fiery angel's burning hands, the ghost man starts rethinking things, right? He, he starts making all kinds of excuses, thinking to himself, Well, maybe... Uh, maybe the lizard's not so bad. Maybe he doesn't want it killed after all. So the angel takes a step towards the lizard again, and the man says, get back. Like, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did, right? And the fire angel says, that's not so. He says, well, well, you're even hurting me right now. And he says, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I just said it wouldn't kill you. Now, at this point, the lizard now is extremely agitated, and he's really talking into the ghost man's ears. And it's so loud, now you can actually hear the lizard. And this is what the lizard says. He says, be careful. He says, he can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and this fiery angel will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you even live? You'd only... You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand us. Oh, and I'll be so good. I'll, I've, I admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you really, I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might even say quite innocent. Did you hear that? <laughs> quite innocent. Almost yeah, allegories are really, really interesting, right? Fiction. You know, good fiction lets you see yourself in the story. So we live with this indwelling sin, and we hate it, and it's dehumanizing us, and yet we're afraid to live without it. And why? Why? Because it will cost us something, right? So Paul, in, chapter, in verse 17 in our text, he begins with really emphatic language. He says, Now this I say and testify, or I insist, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now that word testify in the Greek is martuero, which comes from the same Greek root as from the English word we get martyr, right? So a martyr is someone who testifies to something with the cost of doing so. So a martyr will die to proclaim the truth. And so Paul is saying to a bunch of Gentiles, right? He's saying, 
uh, he's like, hey, Gentiles, don't be like Gentiles. Oh, and it might hurt. <laughs> and then what follows is this portrait of disobedience. And this portrait is, is a, he uses language of like a person growing sick who's nearing death. In verse 17, he says that the Gentiles walk, look there, in the futility of their minds. As if he's saying, he's like, their, their brains aren't working, right? And then he advances that in verse 18 when he says, they are darkened in their understanding due to, what does it say? The hardness of their heart. Now, how did they get sick? Verse 19, they were callous. They were stubborn. Now, listen, like many of you, I, um, I've been at the bedside of many people I love when they were passing away at hospitals. And, and it goes something like this. When the heart becomes hard, it slows down the functioning. And one of the first effects is vision, right? The brain can't process it, um, and so their, their vision gets darkened. They lose often their vision. It all, all gets dark. And so what do they say in that moment when they can't see? They say, take my hand. Squeeze it. So I squeeze, right? And that ends up not being enough because they're losing feel. And so they say, squeeze harder. Because that squeeze before isn't enough, and they need a deeper and a harder experience until, of course, they can't feel anymore. And Paul is using this physiological description, and it's really stark in these opening verses, and it's a portrait, right? It's, it's trying to get us attention. He's, he's trying to call us back, like the medic, right? He's trying to call us back. Do you know what hard-heartedness is? It's a stubborn and unbelieving heart that produces moral recklessness. Like, whenever our ideas and conversations about God become trite and small, then our decisions also become trite and small. And so you can do good things or you can do bad things, but whatever, right? Whatever. Like, good and bad, they're just moral, they're just social constructs, right? And so not believing in God is actually hard to do, but we have these hidden interests. We are so highly motivated to imagine a world without God. And so skepticism and ignorance is extremely attractive, but it's costly. Being alienated from the life of God is all gray and joyless. And when you regularly deny something that you know is true, you become calloused. You know, you'll see this with addiction, right? You know that you should not do a thing, but over time it gets easier. And pretty soon you chase that rabbit. It's like the gateway into addiction or perversity. And refusing God's way gets easier. It gets easier over time. And then you lose the ability to feel how sin wounds your soul. Squeeze harder! Right? In a sophisticated way, you lie to yourself by constructing a logic that justifies your behavior. And by the time you're done, you have found a way to call the thing that you're doing virtuous and noble. And the worst part is not only are you numb to these destructive behaviors... But there's this entire world out there that's dying, and you won't get in the game 
Because you're living this really small, numb, futile life. See, we're categorically greedy. That's what Paul's talking about. We're greedy sexually. We're greedy with our money. We're greedy with our time. And in the end, we just live these small lives. You know, David Brooks, New York Times uh, columnist, columnist, a few years ago, he wrote a piece on a study, and that study asked this question. Would you rather be the president of Harvard or be Justin Bieber's special assistant? Three to one would prefer to work for Justin Bieber. Now listen, you guys, I am a believer. But honestly, goodness, you guys, we're living really small lives. Why would there be three to one? Our cultural imagination is so small and trite. We're thirsty, and it's hard to resist the water because it's all around us. We can't imagine how drinking it might not be good or even toxic. And so this brings us to the next section of Paul's discourse. So we examined first this portrait of disobedience. Now we're gonna, he's going to give us this portrait of change. All right? I was thinking, um, and that portrait of disobedience, of course, is physiological. Those are the words he used. And I was thinking about this next section, and I was thinking, it's really, moder- like it's really relevant for modern uh, audiences. Paul is really interested in how people change. And uh, by the way, so is our society. Like We are actually really interested in this conversation Um, Every other self-help book can be subtitled, How to Be a Better You, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Now, if you look at the broad approaches in our culture, broad approaches to change, uh, you can really file these under two uh, main methodologies. So like the first approach would be cognitive. In other words, um, you attempt to elevate reason over your passions, and if you do, you'll change, they say, right? You can, they, would say, they would say you can think your way into better living. Well, that's very popular, um, but even if, though it's popular, it's highly problematic. First of all, it only works if um, your thoughts on reality are based, um, in reality, are based in truth, which is part of the problem, right? I mean, it's not just me as a Christian minister who's saying this. Um, most people think that its value is very limited. There's tons of literature that shows that long-term success in cognitive behavioral approaches for change are pretty limited. It's pretty, uh, the, the evidence is pretty scarce that it's um, that successful. And, and, and that makes sense, right? Because being human is more than just being a brain on a stick, right? We're more than that. But the other common approach to change is um, setting your passions free, right? Uh, this is the cult of authenticity, This is the idea that we have this moral obligation to be true to that inner voice that we all have, and that inner voice is our truest self, and that is to be valued over all other voices. That is the second major approach. Your heart, culture would tell you, is telling you who you truly are, right? You do you. This is the path to authenticity, people would say. So picking up the family business, that's definitely not who you are, especially if your family business is selling vacuums. You don't want to do that. 
Um, you're better than that. You, you deserve to be Justin Bieber's special assistant. You, a life of true meaning, right? Uh, what could possibly be wrong with this approach, other than everything I've already said? Um, it's when desires rule, when desires rule or govern your life, you will change, and you will change a lot but you are never changing into something, right? You're simply changing in response to your culture's imagination about what you should be. And so in verse 22, Paul alludes to deceitful desires. See that word, deceitful? That is desires that don't actually tell you who you are. They simply seduce you into that particular moment. So the first camp, right, the first approach promotes right thinking. The second camp promotes right feeling. They're both saying this is how you change, right thinking or right feeling. And both of these camps have this wake of futility behind them. But Paul pr- pr- proposes a third way. He says right relationship. Now I know everyone here is pretty disappointed that I don't have a three-step program for change. Hang in there with me. After describing like the pangs of disobedience, the Apostle Paul says in verses 20 and 21, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. You see that? Assuming, he continues, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Look at that though. To learn Christ. Now listen, nowhere in ancient writings do people talk like this. Perhaps you learn about Christ, or maybe you learn of Christ, but to learn Christ, to speak like that, that's way ahead of its time. This is about relationship, walking with him, following him, being shaped by Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel asked God, how, how, do we be, how do we become who you want us to be? And God gave them the law. And that didn't go deep enough. And then in the New Testament, we ask, God, how, how do we become who you want us to be? And God gave us his son, a person. See, people in relation, relationships are what shape us, for better or for worse. You are what you are because of the most meaningful relationships in your life. Let me say that again. You are what you are because of the most meaningful relationships in your life. Every couple knows this. Your couple can make you love Jesus, your, 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 your partner or your best friend, because of their excitement might help you to love Jesus more, or because of their skepticism make you draw away. You are what you are because of the most meaningful relationships in your life. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship. This is why you guys, Christians, are so weird about saying things like, you must have a relationship with Jesus. Like, we're the only people who talk like that. But we're insistent. Yeah, like, I know he's not here. Like, I know he's not right right here. We know that. But we pray to him and we speak to him. And we, we feverishly read the Bible like a seventh grader getting his or her first love letter, and we just pour over the pages, right? 
We visit his house once a week. We have this covenantal meal that he himself invited with his brothers and sisters. We get involved in the work that he's involved in. We stay away from the things that he hates. Why? Because we love him, because we're in relationship with him. If you truly want to change, your vision has to be bigger than rules. In fact, rules are often just this excuse for not having to change. Like I grew up in a tradition where I intuitively believed that I could keep Jesus from meddling with my life if I obeyed a few rules, and mostly the big ones, right? Don't murder, be nice, don't steal, give a little money, pretty much with those. I could keep from having a collision with the person of Jesus Christ who wants to get involved in every part of my character. With adherence to a few rules, I actually would not have to change. Just be good. Who needs Jesus when you're good? It can't be about the rules. You must learn Christ. All truth is in Jesus. Know him, love him, pursue him until your old self starts to melt away, you see. All right. Let me use uh, my conclusion with, uh, let me use my third point um, as my conclusion. I've gone all along, thank you. So we, we examined first this, the portrait of disobedience, a hardened heart to a darkened mind, to a numbness and a callousness the wounds, right? And then we saw this portrait of change, which comes by relationship. And last, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a portrait of obedience. He's going to help us understand what that could look like. All right, so back to C.S. Lewis's story, The Great Divorce. Let me pick back up. So the fiery angel offers to kill the lizard, which is indwelling sin, remember? And the ghost man wants it, but he doesn't want it. Then in a moment of kind of like half-hearted exasperation, the ghost man gives this fiery angel permission to kill the lizard. He just like screams out like recklessly, God help me. And the fiery angel says, sure, you know. And the angel does it. And it hurts really bad, but something immediately begins to change in the story. The ghost man starts becoming more and more human. Like he stands tall, his shoulders are pulled back, and he begins to be solid. He's no longer a ghost figure. He starts recovering living color. And the lizard that lies on the ground dead, something begins to happen to it. That lizard begins to transform. The dead lizard transforms into this huge, powerful, living, but submissive steed, like a war horse of sorts. And then this man, formerly a ghost, mounts this great stallion, and he rides off into this never-ending sunset, controlling this powerful creature. It's like this, man, you've got to read it for yourself. It's this powerful picture. The, the, the ghost formerly enslaved to a lizard turns into a man with a stallion that serves him. The passions that enslaved the man before, when bridled, become this beautiful, powerful force for joy and satisfaction and eternal delight. 
but it required a transition. See, that allegorical imagery depicts the difference between the old self and the new self. And in a very practical way, in verses 24, or 22 and then 24, Paul employs this clothing metaphor. Look what, it, look, look what it says. He says, put off your old self, almost like a, like a set of clothing, right? Don't go back to your old life that was ruled by desires instead of being ruled by your king, right? And then in verse 24, it says, now put on your new self. In other words, don't just listen differently, actually live differently. Why? Because, because what you do is you. Do you understand that? What you do is you. Here's what you got to expect. When you deal seriously with your unbridled passions and cut off the rebellious impulses of your heart, in that moment, you're actually killing you. Like, you know when Jesus says, hey, listen, if your eye or your, or your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away, right? That, I promise you, that hand, that eye is really you. That's 100% you, but it has to go. So our text is calling us to do something really deep. Sometimes by... Uh, sometimes we resist obeying Jesus or, or we won't allow the fiery angel to kill the lizard, right? Um, because we believe that we are permitted to live a certain way if that's genuinely who we are. We can't believe that the blue ocean water is not good for drinking. The Bible disagrees. We are to put on Christ, verse 24, created after the likeness of God, not our likeness, see that, in true righteousness and holiness. See those words? True righteousness and holiness. Listen, I know words like righteous and holiness in our culture have become really off-putting, right? They sound legalistic. It's like someone who's super close-minded, just drinking the Kool-Aid. Those are the people who use those words, right? But the reason why those words feel this is because our collective imagination is so small. We can't actually hear compassion in those words. We can't imagine a world where holiness is a gift. It's crazy, you guys. Statistically speaking, half of you Statistically speaking, half of you have been abused. 90% prematurely exposed to pornography. Sexual dysphoria is astronomically risen. People are lonely and wounded and hurting and hurting others. And yet when Christians talk about holiness and righteousness, we're the crazy ones. Maybe we're just like sad that the world is what it is. Our imaginations are shipwrecked. We're at sea we're the guy saying, don't drink the water. And then the other people are saying, he's so close-minded. You know? These words are compassionate. They're words of true love. The Apostle Paul ends this section with a really practical portrait of obedience, particularly in two areas, in speech and in your heart. Look with me. In verse 25, he says, put away falsehood. Speak truth to each other. And then verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Give grace to those who hear. 
Give grace to those who hear. He says, don't speak about a person in public when you should speak words to a person in private. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what Christians do. Words matter. There must be words of truth and grace. If you just speak grace, then you can become an enabler and you help people to hurt themselves. If you speak truth without grace, that makes you a bully. That's why verbal abuse is so damaging. It's absolutely dehumanizing. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it. You must let your words be tools of building others up. And then in verse 28, the Apostle Paul shows a portrait, an example of this complete turnaround. Now look at it. Look at, look at that in verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal. Don't steal. Great. Obeying the rule. That's really good. He's seeing people not as targets, but as humans, right? And then it says, rather let him, talking about the former thief, labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So now, not only does he not steal, now he's working. He's doing something positive. He's, he's producing. He's, he's, he can take care of himself. And then it finishes, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the thief has stopped stealing. Good. Obey the rule. Now he's working and producing. Great. Awesome. Now for what? So that he can bless and care for others. Now that's amazing. Like, could you, like, like, imagine this. Imagine, like, a thug goes to the home of a single mother, knocks on the door. She's working hard. Being a single parent's hard, barely paying her bills. And he presents her with a bag of groceries. And she says, hey, aren't you, like, the neighborhood thief? Yes, ma'am. But Jesus changed me. I quit stealing and I got a job at the supermarket. Here, I hope these groceries help. I'll try to make my way around regularly, if that helps. And also, I put the hubcaps back on your car that I stole. <laughs> like, but you see, this is like a full and beautiful reversal. Y'all see how the full... So here's what Paul's getting at. Obedience is not simply just being this good boy and girl so that Jesus likes you. This is about putting Christ on. It's a new imagination. It's a, it's a new way of becoming human. We get new motives. Not, not only do we repent of the bad things we do, but we also actually repent of the, the good things we do. When we do a good thing for wrong reasons, yeah, we're surrendering that to Jesus too because we don't want to manipulate people. We get a new mind. We start thinking drastically different than our culture. We get a new master. The lizard is no longer our master. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Jesus says, come into my home. Come. Now, you're not going to get your way in my home, but you will get your most profound satisfaction here. Here, your heart will get what it's looking for. Now, listen closely. Christianity is not about making irreligious people religious. It's not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people to come alive, to be fully human. Obedience is not about earning the right to be loved. It's about becoming alive and redeemed. And how do I know this to be true? 
It's because God's love is not a carrot that he's holding out in front of you. You hear me? God's love's not a carrot that he's holding out in front of you. God's love is extended to you before you ever even change. And in fact, that's the agent of change. And you have to believe this. You won't change until your heart is just scandalized by his love. That's the whole scandal of Christianity, everyone. That's why we're a little bit nutty. God's grace is first. It changes us. Put it on. Would you let these three portraits change you? Would, they, would you let them be new filters for thinking about the world? That's what this text aims to do. Amen? Amen.